filling in for Randy this morning as he is taking a special weekend to uh, honor his wife on her birthday. And uh, yesterday was not only Valentine's Day, but it was Roseanne's birthday. And if any of you guys just went, oh no, yesterday was Valentine's Day, we do have a therapist on site. <laughs> but I don't know if we can do anything at this point. So I'm thankful to have the chance to step in. I'll be taking up the preaching responsibilities in about three weeks as we finish the Old Testament study of the story, and then I'll take over in the New Testament. And uh, yet I'm thankful for this chance to talk to you about this powerful story tucked away in the latter pages of the Old Testament, the story of Ezra, Haggai, and Zechariah. Let's pray together, and then we'll get to work. Heavenly Father, please have mercy upon the one who speaks. For heaven knows his sins are many. And may we see Jesus today and just Jesus. Through Christ we pray and all the church said. Sometimes life is all about pig slop and whale guts. The prodigal son can tell you about the pig slop. He requested inheritance from his father before his father's passing, took the money and went to the equivalent of a Monte Carlo of his day and wasted all of his money. Finally had to get a job, found a job feeding pigs. The salary of the swine job must have stunk as badly as the pigs did because he grew so hungry that one day he was seriously considering making a meal out of pig slop. That's what it took for him to come to his senses and begin that journey home. The story of Jonah doesn't include pig slop, but it does include fish guts. Jonah is a real person. The prodigal son is a fictional character in a parable, but Jonah was a real person who had a real problem with God's assignment on his life. God sent him to preach to a city called Nineveh, and Jonah had a problem with the Ninevites. And for many reasons, he did not think they deserved to hear about God's love. He'd just soon they go to hell and experience the fire and brimstone, as far as he was concerned. And so instead of turning right, he turned left, and he ran away from God. And God responded by placing Jonah in the ultimate version of timeout. And he spent three days in the belly of a whale, but three days was all that even the whale could stomach. And so he vomited Jonah out on the beach and Jonah there dripping of gastric juices and salt water decided it was time to go to Nineveh. He got back on track. So we have the prodigal and the pigs, we have Jonah and the fish, and we have the Jews and the abandoned temple foundation. Now I realize that third sentence doesn't quite have the marquee headline appeal of the first two. And its story does not include a pig trough and doesn't include a fish tummy. But its story does describe a, a people who experienced a prodigal rebellion, passed through a Jonah lapse. And most of all, this story answers the big question, and that is, what does God do when we make his big thing our small thing? How does God respond to our misplaced priorities and lapses? 
What does God do when we get off track? It's a great story. Here's the background. The children of Israel have passed the last nearly three generations in Babylonian exile. You'll remember if you've been reading the story that uh, their city, the beloved city of Jerusalem, was razed to the ground. The temple was ransacked, and they were taken into Babylonian exile. And as Randy taught us last week, were it not for the exceptional courage of Daniel and his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, uh, those years would have been dark days indeed. But they were good men, and they redeemed those good days. And it may have been the reputation of Daniel that uh, God honored in this next surprise development. After all these decades of isolation and exile, a tunnel of light pierces the clouds and surprises the people. I'm reading from page 217 in the story or in the book of Ezra, chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. And as you're opening to that, let me conduct our survey. I'm wondering how many of you brought your copy of the story or a copy of the Bible with you. Could you hold it up, please? We have a little machine that's going around from the ceiling. It registers 91.6% this morning. Good job, everybody. Good job. The text reads like this. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and also put it in writing. This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build a temple for him in Jerusalem in Judah. Any of his people among you, may their God be with them, and let them go up to Jerusalem in Judah and build the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem. And in any locality where survivors may now be living, the people are to provide them with silver and gold, with goods and livestock, with free will offerings for the temple of God in Jerusalem. What a remarkable turn of events. God turns the heart of King Cyrus toward the Jews, turns the Jews toward Jerusalem. And God prompted the king to give the exiles not only permission, but the resources with which to build the temple. Now, why would God do this? Why would God make such a big deal out of his temple? Now, we all know that God doesn't need a house in which to live. The Bible says that God does not, need, does not dwell in temples that are made with hands. So why would God make such a priority out of building the temple? He doesn't need a house in which to live, but we need a picture that we can study. And the temple is a picture of God's powerful passion of proximity. The temple was a picture. It was a teaching tool. It was an illustration right in the middle of the people. Maybe you've never considered this before, so think about the purpose of the temple to ancient Israel. What purpose did it serve? It communicated the powerful truth that God wants to be in the middle of his people. Where was the temple? Was it on a mountain that no one could reach, a deserted island that no one could see? No. It was smack dab in the most populated city of ancient Israel, Jerusalem. So every time anybody walked past the temple, a message was communicated to them. God wants to be here. God wants to be in the neighborhood. God wants to be in the middle of his people. But it also communicated a problem, and that is the problem of our iniquity, our sin. 
Because could anyone who wanted to enter the temple and go into the Holy of Holies? No. Only a priest, and then only after a blood sacrifice. So for generations, as the temple stood, received the sacrifices of the people, a message was communicated, and that is the purpose of blood sacrifice in order for people to have access to God. Now, from our perspective in history, on this point in the timeline, looking back down to the left on the timeline, we can see, oh, okay, God was preparing the world for the coming of Jesus Christ, who came into the neighborhood in the form of Jesus of Nazareth, and who gave himself as the final sacrifice for sin. And so now there is access to God. Okay, the temple was preparing the people for this. It was an educational tool so that when Jesus came, the people could connect the dots more quickly. Well, while the children of Israel were in exile, the temple did not exist. And so God in his sovereign plan decided it was time to use the temple again. Because the temple would communicate these three important truths. Number one, God's passion. God's passion is proximity. He wants to be close to us. Number two, God's problem, or I'm sorry, our problem. Our problem of iniquity or sin. But then God's solution, and that is access through the shedding of blood. And so now, after all these decades without a teaching tool, God decides it's time to construct one. And in 538 B.C., 50,000 Jews, 50,000 Jews, prompted by God, funded by Cyrus, make the 900-mile trek from Babylon to Jerusalem, and they begin to get to work. And initially, God's big thing was their big thing. Initially, God's big thing was their big thing. I mean, they rolled up the sleeves of their robes, and they got to work building the temple. On page 218 of the story, or in Ezra chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, we read these words. The people assembled with one accord in Jerusalem. Then Joshua, son of Jozadak, and his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, and his associates, began to build the altar of the God of Israel to sacrifice burnt offerings on it, in accordance with what is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. Despite their fear of the peoples around them, they built the altar. They built the altar on its foundation and sacrificed burnt offerings on it to the Lord, both the morning and evening sacrifices. The dissenters came. The outsiders tried to infiltrate and discourage them, them from building the temple. But they maintained their resolve, didn't they? They stayed focused on the task. They made God's big thing their big thing. They made God's priority their priority. But do you know what happened? After a few years, they lost track. They lost their focus. And little by little, they began to turn less attention to the house of God and more attention to their own personal projects. Who knows why? Maybe stacking stones was too tiresome for them. Maybe... Uh, the criticism was too irksome for them. Or, more likely, they just started thinking about their own personal endeavors, their own businesses, their own farms, their, their own enterprises, their own houses. And so one by one, little by little, person by person, they quit showing up to the work site. And one day, no one came. No one came. And God's big thing had become their small thing. 
God's big thing had become their small thing. Now I'm thinking they didn't intend to abandon the project forever. Surely don't you think that they were thinking, we'll get back to it. Give us a week, give us a month, give me a year, let me get the, let me get the crops harvested, let me get the house finished. We'll come back to it. And one week passed, one month passed, one year passed, two years passed, five years passed, ten years passed, fifteen years passed, sixteen years. The temple project sat untouched. It turned into an abandoned construction site. Sixteen years. Enough time for the weeds and the grass to grow up over the footers of the foundation. Enough time for all the surrounding nations to look at that temple and think, well, they don't take their God very seriously. Enough time for a whole generation of children to grow up and look at that abandoned project and think, well, I guess our parents don't care much about that temple. <laughs> Meanwhile, while God's house languished, their houses flourished. Fine paneled houses, Haggai will say. The former exiles built their businesses, they built their enterprises, and to their surprise, they grew more and more miserable as the day passed. If you're going to take a highlighter to any words in chapter 19 of the story, highlight what Haggai says on page 220. Or highlight it in your Bible. In the book of Haggai, chapter 1, Verses 4 through 11, seven of the most remarkable verses that many people have never read. Haggai says this. Is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses? While this house, which house is he referring to there? The house of God, the temple. While the house, this house remains a ruin, this is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. You have planted much, but have harvested little. You eat, but never have enough. You drink, but never have your fill. You put on clothes, but you are not warm. You earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. This is what the Lord Almighty says. What does he say? Give careful thought to your ways. Go up to the mountains and bring down the timber and build the house so that I may take pleasure in it and be honored, says the Lord. You expected much, but it, see, it turned out to be little. What you brought home, I blew away. Why, declares the Lord Almighty? Because of my house, which remains a ruin. While each of you is busy with his own house, therefore, because of you, the heavens have withheld their dew and the earth its crops. I called for a drought on the fields and the mountains, on the grain, the new wine, the olive oil, and everything else that the ground produces on people and livestock and all the labor of your hands. Whoa. Now there's a glimpse into the action of a just God. You want to know how God responds to lethargy and misplaced priorities? You just read it. You ever wondered what God does when we make his big thing a small thing and make our small things a big thing? Now you know. Have you ever wondered how God gets our attention when we won't give him our attention? Well, you just read a, play, a page out of his playbook. Here's what he does. He lets us stink with the pigs, and he lets us sink 
with the fish. And he permits droughts and downturns and difficulties. He puts a chill in the corner office. He puts a dent in the savings account. He permits a drought to come on the farm. He sends a lonely wind through the big house. Most of all, life is just marked by futility. We plant much, but we harvest little. We eat, but we never feel satisfied. We drink, but we never have that deepest thirst abated. We dress, but we never feel warm. We, we never feel protected. We put on layer after layer, yet we don't feel secure. And we earn wages, salaries, dollars. We earn money only to see it disappear, to see it disappear through the holes in our purses. Life just doesn't seem to work. Our finest endeavors begin to collapse like tsunami-sucked-out sandcastles. Now, what do we do with a passage like this? I think we have to be careful with it. I don't want you to leave here today thinking that every tiny mishap is a judgment or a discipline or an expression of God's anger. When you get stopped at a red light or you get a common cold, don't be quick to interpret that as some theological significance. But listen, here's what I do want you to know. There are seasons of life that are so difficult, that are so challenging, that stack one difficulty upon another for such an extended period of time that these are extended seasons in which God is saying, Wake up. Do you not see what I have done? There are seasons of God-ordained struggle, times of exhaustive emptiness, when nothing seems to work. When nothing quenches our deepest thirsts. When no achievement abates our restless hunger. When we plant but we never really harvest. When droughts turn our fields into dust and our retirements into pocket change. When God allows times of difficulty to come so that we will according to him and his words, examine our ways. Now you'd almost have to be blind, I think, not to see the direct application this has to our nation. We have never been more sophisticated as a country. We have never been more educated as a country. We have never had more universities and more hospitals. We have never had larger cities. We have never been more advanced. And yet we have never been more broke. Is someone going to wake up? But, you know, we don't help a nation by pointing a finger at Washington. We really help a nation by pointing a finger at ourselves. And Haggai is speaking to individuals. And so I think God is speaking to us individually. And I believe he may be saying to some of us this morning, consider your ways. It's very easy, isn't it, for us to lose our first passion. It's very easy for us to be enthusiastic about something and then have that enthusiasm wane. This happens to me quite often. In fact, I have a closet or we have a closet in our house that you might call the storage closet of forgotten passions things that I used to be excited about that I've forgotten about a few years ago a, a very good friend of mine gave me a telescope for Christmas although he may not be a good friend after I confess to you what I'm about to confess <laughs> I got very enthused about 
realizing a childhood dream of studying the stars and becoming an astronomer. I got all excited about staring through this telescope and learning about it. And, and I tell you what, I was absolutely committed to mastering this tool for 24 hours. <laughs> it's been in a closet now for quite a while. It's got dust on it. I'm not sure I know where the instruction manual is. But I was excited about it at first. I really was. When my three daughters were young, single-digit age, we came out of a construction store. I don't remember where it was. Maybe a Lowe's or a Walmart. We came out with this great idea. Stepping stone kit. And I remember finding it in the store, wherever it was, thinking, oh, this would be great. And I got the girls all excited about it. I said, honey, we're going to spend the afternoon building stepping stones for your mom's garden. You can put, put messages on them, and you can paint them, and you can say, like, welcome to my garden, or my daddy is wonderful. You can create messages <laughs> and, and place them, and we'll spend the afternoon doing that. And we were excited, but something happened. You know, this has never been opened. I brought three packages of photographs. I could have brought a thousand. We have 27 years worth of photos of our family. I get excited every so often about taking all these pictures and putting them in a scrapbook. And I envision, I have a vision for the future, a vision of scrapbooks up on a shelf. And they're all marked according to appropriate time. And if we want to see the pictures from Christmas of 1998, we'll see them, and then we'll pull it down and look at it, and we'll all laugh. But they're still in sacks. <laughs> and they have been for a long time. But I'm very excited about it every so often. I have a storage of forgotten passions. That storage closet has a a guitar in it. It has some books in it. It has some exercise programs in it. Storage closet of forgotten passions. Now what am I saying? Am I saying that everything you start you need to finish? No, I'm not. Quite honestly, I've learned that some things are not worth finishing. Some things you get into them, you say, boy, this wasn't worth the time. It's not a good use of time. It was a good idea. Some things you get into and you say, you know, it's just not worth finishing. Some books you pick up and you start reading and it's not worth finishing. Not my books, but some books are, are like that. So I'm not saying, I'm really not saying you need to finish everything you start. Here's what I'm saying. And that is, don't even think for a second you can put God in your storage closet of forgotten passions. Don't even think it's a possibility. He won't stay there. He is alive, he is living, and he refuses. And if you think he's on a storage closet shelf awaiting the attention that you're going to give him next month or next decade or after the kids are grown or once the transfer takes place, you might as well forget that. And his message to you today is a stern one. He's either 
the big thing or he's nothing. He's either the big thing or he's nothing. And if you think you're putting him in a storage closet, you might prepare yourself for 16 years in which nothing seems to quench your thirst, no food seems to take your hunger, no clothing seems to give you protection, no harvest seems to fill your table, in which nothing seems to work. It's a firm message, isn't it? It's a firm message because if you're like me, you tend to wane in your commitment, tend to wane in your enthusiasm. But the great message is we can always come back. It's not too late to come back. All of us have been called out of Babylon if we're in Christ. We've been called out of Babylonian captivity of of sin and darkness and purposelessness and confusion and despair. And God came and he found us and he said, I'm sending you back to Jerusalem. And I'm not just sending you back to Jerusalem to be saved, but I'm sending you back to Jerusalem to live a saved life, to be a different kind of person among a foreign people, to be my temple. Not a temple of stones and rafters, but a temple of human beings, of husbands and wives and grandmas and grandparents and and, and kids, human beings in the schools and businesses and cul-de-sacs and corners of the world. Go, be my temple. Be my living message of absolute access to God because of sufficient sacrifice of of, of blood of Christ for the forgiveness of sins. You go and you, and boy, we got all fired up about that. And we began that journey home and we put Babylon in the rearview mirror. We put Jerusalem ahead of us and we got here and we started to work, but then came the distractions. The kids, the job, the transfer, the demands, the stress and the struggle, and then all of a sudden we look up and it's been a long time since we woke up thinking about God's house. And with the passage of time comes the diminishing of passion and tithing becomes tipping and prayers become rote quotes and church attendance becomes an obligation. It's not that we forget God, it's just that we want to put him in that storage closet. And the message of Haggai and the message of God is I don't stay, God says, I don't stay in anyone's storage closet. That's not just a bad idea, that's an absolute spiritual impossibility. He just won't stay there. And to get our attention, folks, he'll turn our world upside down. And he'll allow us to pass through an extended period of difficulty to get our attention. And sometimes he pulls us aside face to face. And he gives us a heart to heart. And he says, it's time for you to examine your ways. It's time to wash the pig mud off, to shower the fish guts off, to buy a bus ticket to Nineveh. It's time to go up into the mountains and bring down the timber and build the house. And the Jews did. This is one of the great stories in the Bible because the Jews did it. They said, you know what? He's right. We've gotten off track. And they got back on track and they built the house of God with a renewed spirit. And twice God said to them, I am with you. And I believe with all of my heart that he is with us as a congregation. I believe that he is with us. We at the Oak Hills Church are dead serious about trying to do the best we can of being the temple of God in the city of San Antonio. And to do that, we can no longer have church as usual. But we're envisioning a day with Randy's strategic leadership and the prayerful blessing of our elders and the active involvement of all of us in which we do something that none of us have ever seen, something that has a feel of a book of Acts to it. 
A field in which a city itself is turned upside down, in which crime rates go down, in which the poor are touched, in which the story of Christ exists on every corner, every cul-de-sac, every district, and every school. And we're talking about a, a no-kidding commitment to the advancement of Christ in the city of San Antonio. We're dedicating the month of August in 2009 to prayer and specific strategizing about this. We've reserved the AT&T Center on August the 23rd as a citywide church service in which we're going to dedicate and redouble our efforts to press forward. And I really want you to be a part of it. I really do. Because in order for us to penetrate the city as we want to penetrate the city, we need all hands on deck. And we need some of you to come out of retirement. Need some of you to come out of retirement. It's time to come back from Branson. It's time to come out of sabbatical. You've got some spiritual gifts that San Antonio needs. You've got some compassion that San Antonio needs. You've got some respect and some understanding of people and pockets of the city that no one else has. You can do something that no one else can do. You can write checks that no one else can write. You can be committed and give your heart. You can be a part of the greatest work in all of history. Now, some of you are right there. In fact, I dare say most of you are right there, ahead of us, moving forward. But then there are a few who are lagging behind. And I believe God's message through Haggai to all of us is this. Come back. Come back. Be about the big thing of God. Jesus once said these words to a church. These words are recorded in the book of Revelation, but they are the words of Jesus to a church. He said, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen and repent and do the first works. How do you return home? You remember, you repent, and you do the first works. You remember how tough life was back in Babylon, and you remember how gracious God was to save you from there. And then you repent. You say, you know, Lord, I'm sorry. I have. I've been wasting time. I've been building my own house and neglecting yours. And do the first works. Prayer, commitment, service, loving your neighbor, reading God's word. You do the first works. And you know what all of us have found, or at least most of us? If we put God in first place, then all the second place things fall into order. Right? It's not like these things of our business and our houses and our families don't matter to God. It's just that they don't work as long as we make them more important than we make Him. Jesus said, if you seek first my kingdom and God's righteousness, then all of these other things should be added to you as well. Have you found that if you put God first, then your business benefits? Have you found that if you put God first, then your family is healthier? Have you found, you can say amen at any point. <laughs> Have you found that if you put God first, then your body is healthier? You sleep better at night? Everything just kind of begins to work. And, and you drink and you satisfy the thirst. You eat and it satisfies the hunger. You put on clothing and you feel secure. There's something about life that works. C.S. Lewis said, if you put first things first, we get second things thrown in. But if you put second things first, we lose both first and second things. So put first things first. Prodigal son did. He came home and was given a place at the table. Jonah did. He complained, but he finally got back on track. And the Jews did. They built the house of God. And they participated in the greatest work of heaven. And I'm praying that we will as well.